are we really going to be talking about problems in the Cuyahoga County Jail again? Looks like we are. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion by the team here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Ranowski, the regular panel, to regale you with great stories and lots of laughter. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Howdy. Let's get right to a happy talk story, the Cuyahoga County Jail. A few months after things seemed to be under control at the Cuyahoga County Jail, where eight people died two years ago, how have conditions become so bad again recently? Chris Ranowski, really, I thought they got this fixed. I thought, okay, we can put that away. You know, it was hugely scandalous. The administration of Armin Budish had done a terrible job in dealing with it, but they finally got it together. But now we're back right back where we were, it seems. Yeah, this is the problem that keeps on being a problem. We uh, Five months ago, something kind of astounding happened in this county. A bunch of people from the prosecutor's office, the public defender's office, the jail county, all came together and did this great thing, which was they got like 900 people out of the jail in response to or in anticipation of the coronavirus. So they got all these nonviolent offenders out in order to sort of stem the, the tide of the coronavirus there. Well, now those numbers are sort of starting to climb up. Uh, we've had two people die at the jail in recent weeks. And, you know, we're, we're at a point now where the, the, the jail pods are starting to be crowded. We, we've, we've written about this issue extensively. It's called, uh, it's something that they call red zoning, which is they basically put a bunch of uh, inmates in a pod and then they stay in that pod for 23 hours a day and they, they, they're, you know, they're let out for like an hour to, to move around and, and eat and, and do those things. That's starting to become a problem again. The reason they do this is because they, they're having issues with, uh, corrections officers calling off and they're, they're having a difficult time getting people to work. So the way they do that, the reason they do that is so they, they have one or two guards managing a much larger population of, of, of the jail. And one of the reasons that, that the crowding is starting to become an issue, uh, we found out that the state is, it has put some strict limitations on how many people can be transferred out of the jail. So there, there's over like a hundred people who are awaiting transfer from the Cuyahoga County Jail to a state penitentiary because they've been convicted of a, of a crime and they, they have a prison sentence, but the, the state is saying, no, we can't take them. They've put limits on how many a day that they're taking. So, you know, that's another thing that's sort of designed to keep the, the virus out of state prisons. So right now we're up to about 1500 inmates. I think at our peak, I think we were in the 20 or 2000, maybe 2200 range. So we're still well below what we were when we were at our sort of highest peaks, but you know, seeing that number start to climb after after they demonstrated that they have the ability to get nonviolent drug offenders out of the jail, that, you know, that, that they have the ability to move people out through bail or, you know, no bail or, or whatever. It, it's it's a little alarming. So I don't want to take a break because we keep using the word red zoning. And there's been a mm -hmm. lot of talk lately about about euphemisms, you know, they're, they're the police-involved shooting that journalists mm -hmm. often use when we really should say police shot and killed somebody. You know, red zoning, it's a lockdown. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a euphemism for a lockdown, and lockdowns in most prisons and jails are reserved for when escapes happen or if there's a security breach. 
this is the only jail I've ever dealt with where they just lock people down because they don't have enough guards on hand to deal with the big population. And and we should probably be making that clear every time we use the the term right. red zone. They are saying, you know, as you mentioned, that that the lack of trials is having an effect. But but you're right. When when they got these guys together, when they got their heads together and said, let's do this for public safety, they did it. And now they've just it seems like they've stopped paying attention. And- well, and, and, you know, it's it's a weird thing to say, but, you know, a lack of trials, that's you know, that's not the inmates fault. And and at some point, you know, people are are owed a, a right to a speedy trial. And so I, I think, you know, uh, justice systems around the country are going to probably start having to deal with this issue where, you know, there are people who are sitting in jail on because they can't make bond or, you know, but I think people are probably going to start, you know, attorneys are going to start filing, uh, you know, motions for speedy trials to try to get these you know, these things kind of moving because it just, it seems like we're sort of edging toward like a constitutional issue here. People's civil rights being violated for just languishing in jail because the justice system can't move forward because of the coronavirus. Well, they do, but they do expect to have a solution to that, or at least they're hoping that they can turn the global center for health solutions, which is pretty much empty because it's such a terrible idea into (laughs) a temporary courthouse because there's so much more space to spread out in. So maybe they can start doing some of the, uh, the jury trials soon. The county council and the administration haven't agreed to that idea, but people on the criminal justice side are pushing for it. So we'll have to see what happens. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Ohio saw a striking spike in coronavirus cases Tuesday, and despite the state's ridiculously poor performance at analyzing its contact tracing data to spot trends, we can tell some things from the age breakdowns of the new cases, and the governor has spoken on what he thinks is causing it. Jane Cahoon, what's causing it? And it's not really a surprise this would happen. (laughs) It's not a surprise, but I think it's pretty stunning when you look at the figures. So it's young people uh, going back to school and going back to college. So Rich Exner used data for the onset of symptoms and he found that people under 30 accounted for 53.5% of the new coronavirus cases over the last seven days. So that, that figure, just for comparison, that figure was like 43.8% for the previous seven days and in the range of about 31 to 33% for each of the three weeks before then. So you can see that really went up. And, and you're right, uh, Mike DeWine did say, basically confirmed at his Tuesday briefing that he thinks a significant part of the spike that they saw is is caused by colleges and grade schools and high schools going back. <laughs> what a nearly, shock. <laughs> we had nearly 1,500 cases reported on Tuesday, which is a level we haven't seen since July. Now, that's one day, so, you know, it's hard to tell. But, but it's we, obvious but we, that in the, among the young people, we're seeing we're seeing a big, I mean, more than half of the cases. And for perspective, the, the, what was the seven or 21 day average? It was about 1000 something, right? I mean, that right. 1500 is a staggering leap up. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, I add something. This is Laura Johnston. This is only Tuesday. And we've seen a pattern where you have low numbers on the weekends, Monday's low, and then they grow through the week. So we could see some sky high numbers by Friday. I hope not. 
<laughs> and if I recall, the weekend numbers weren't quite as low as they normally are. I think you we know, had like 1,200 on one of the days. And this was this was entirely predictable and predictive. As Chris Quinn will tell you, he said, don't let them go back to school. You get a bunch of kids in school and at colleges where they're drinking. And what do you see? You see outbreaks. It'll, I, what I'm waiting to see is what the reaction is. You know, there are a whole bunch of school districts that are that are just on the edge of saying, let's go back. Let's go back. I mean, they've started the remote teaching largely this week. Some started last week. And, you know, the initial reports we're hearing from some parents is it's way better than it was in the spring when they had no time to plan. Um, my wife's a teacher and she's feeling actually okay this week. <laughs> you know, I'm actually doing some teaching. Laura, your kids started this week. I think you said it was going a bit better than, than it had before. I was really impressed by how organized and engaged they were and the kids, you know, now I feel like they're responsible to someone else. Like the teacher, you know, they have these um, apps to keep track of who's on time on their Zooms and who's behaving. And so it's not just me yelling at them to do a Google form, like their teachers are keeping track and their classmates know. So I, I feel like a load has been taken off of me. It's, I mean, the timing is still difficult, but yeah, I feel better about it. Well, but the districts do want to get back if they can and be healthy. And they're they're all watching. They're all what's the experience in places going back? Well, yesterday's number, not a good sign. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the remote learning may continue for a good bit of the fall. We'll be paying attention. Check Cleveland.com regularly for updates. It's this week in the CLE. Ohio saw a spike in highway deaths in July. So what's the cause and what does Governor Mike DeWine want to do about it? Laura Johnston, this was an odd one because in the beginning of the pandemic, we had been doing stories about how highway deaths had dropped off the charts and traffic tickets were way down. The roads were all empty. I was I was pretty surprised to see in July that we hit a record number. What's going on? Yeah, this was really surprising. It was the deadliest month since 2007. 154 people were killed on Ohio highways. Speed was a contributor to the accidents, but the number of people on motorcycles killed was up 52% compared to the previous July. Pedestrian fatalities were up 113%. So DeWine is concentrating on the driver error, which he says causes 94% of serious crashes. And he really wants the Ohio General Assembly to pass a bill that would increase the penalty for texting while driving from a minor misdemeanor to a new unclassified misdemeanor with a $150 fine and then tiered penalties for additional violations because he just wants people to pay attention while they're driving. Well, the pedestrians, you can kind of see, right? Everybody's at home. Lots of people are exercising outside because yeah. they weren't going to their gyms. So it's a little less surprising. More people are on the street, which would lead to more people getting hit by careless driving. I don't quite understand the motorcycles. Uh, or is there an explosion of people riding motorcycles for recreation that would... It would account for that. I don't know. Maybe we should check that out. We're checking out boat registrations to see if they're way up. Maybe people are like, well, can't do anything else. I'm going to ride my motorcycle because I'm socially distant. I yeah, I, it, just, it's, it just was a bit of a surprise. I have a theory because because I always have a theory, have a theory. That, that it's travel trailers, the bane of any highway experience. If there's ever a traffic not on the highway, you can bet one of those RVs is at the front of it. And I suspect there are a whole lot more of those on the road this summer than have been in previous years. And, you know, those people don't need commercial driver's licenses, even though they're driving something that's the size of a semi-trailer and they don't know how. So I wonder if there's that's any way to get at that theory. 
because I'm pretty sure I'd be right. Oh, I was just going to say, we just had a story go up from our sister site, Cleveland Business Journal, that there's an RV share company in Akron that doubled its business in like 13 months. Because See? Of there yeah, you go. There's <laughs> your theory. There's your backup. You should have to have a commercial driver's license to drive those things. They're the most dangerous vehicles on the road. It's this week in the CLE. What will 7.8 million voters find in their mailboxes in the next few days or week? Chris Ranowski, we've spent a lot of time talking about the election and the fears people have about the election. But, you know, here's the election. It's coming. So what is going to be in the mailboxes? Hopefully mail, given what's happening with the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> please, I need my bills. Come on. Uh, no. Um, okay. No, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose has mailed uh, millions of absentee ballot applications to Ohio voters for the November presidential election as part of a long-running state policy meant to make voting by mail more convenient during major statewide elections. So, you know, we're... Everybody should be getting something saying it's time to request your absentee ballot. And uh, 7.8 of those are going to be going out. So uh, it's a a quandary, (laughs) though, right? I mean, with all the problems with the mail, so you get this thing. If you fill it out and get your ballot, you're you're committed, right? I mean, you pretty much have to mail it in. But everybody's so worried about it. I'll be interested to see how many people do it. I'm not doing it. I'm I'm just not going to trust the mail with the ballot. I'm going to go vote in person. And I guess the other thing people can do is they can drop them off themselves at the drop boxes if they don't want to mail them, right? You said drop boxes, plural. Um, As of right now, (laughs) we have one drop box in the county that's at the Board of Elections. So you can get your absentee ballot and drive it down there and drop it off. It's pretty easy. Um, there are currently some legal challenges to the fact that LaRose is only allowing one drop box per county. Uh, I guess is that that's, I'm right in saying that, right? It's one per county. Right. Right. And so it, yeah. So, so, you know, there's, there's two court cases, one in state court, one in federal court that is, is trying to address this issue and, and, and to get more ballot boxes because, you know, the prevailing argument is that it, it does sort of put, it does disenfranchise, you know, people who can't travel, people who don't have easy access to to, you know, to get down there. I mean, there's no train service to anywhere near the Board of Elections. So, you know, to get down there by public transportation, you'd have to take a train, a couple of buses. And, you know, it, it I mean, you'd really have to make a day out of it out of it if you were going to try to do that. So, well, and one argument is that it's not equal county to county because we have so many more people in Cuyahoga County. So it's one one ballot drop off box per per million, whereas in some rural counties, it's tens of thousands. I know, Chris, you're going to vote in person at the Board of Elections. Laura Johnston, Jen Cahoon, what are you going to do this year? Uh, I requested my ballot and I'm going to trust the mail system. Um, I did have a question for Chris I'd, or Jane, if they know the answer. I got this question from an email yesterday. If people have already requested their ballot, like I sent in my ballot request before Frank LaRose sent out these requests. We're fine, right? We don't need to send in another one. It's not like... No, that would be fraud. No, no. <laughs> That's true, right? That's a good point. So, no, yeah, they were yeah. saying early on, you know, send it in as soon as you can. So I think so a lot of people in, maybe already did when they got these in the mail. But, yeah. Where, how are you going to vote, Jane? You know, I, I've been listening to Chris Wernowski make the case for going to the Board of Elections in person. And if they're, you know, beyond the initial rush when it quiets down, I think that's what I'm going to do because 
there you are. You're there in person. You're casting your vote. I had thought about, you know, requesting the ballot, but no matter how you look at it, you're relying on the mail if you do it that way, because they have to mail you the ballot. And I just picture myself, when's my ballot coming? When's my ballot coming? You know, so I think that's what I'm going to do. Follow Chris's lead. I just just feel like if you're relatively healthy, uh, which, you know, I mean, I can make an argument that I might not be the healthiest person in the world, but, you know, I I feel like I'm comfortable, you know, going out and doing it. And I, I would hope that anybody who feels like they are are healthy enough to to do it and to be responsible about it, you know, go out and do it in person. You're, you know, it's one less vote in the mail and, you know, it's a little more comfort in knowing that you're going to get counted. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Here's my favorite story of the day. Did ousted Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder really show up to do his duty as a House member Tuesday, regardless of being at the center of the biggest bribery scheme in Ohio history. Jane Cahoon, jaw dropper. He actually (laughs) showed up to do the work. I'm so happy to elaborate on your favorite story, Chris. Yes, he did. You know, it was almost like there he was surrounded by reporters. You know, he's still a House member. You know, unlike his recent trip to the federal courthouse, however, he was not wearing a mask. Uh, Some people were pretty amazed at his audacity, even though, as I said, he still is a member of the House, even though he's no longer the Speaker. So he said he was just, you know, trying to do his job and serve his constituents. And, you know, to add to the perhaps audaciousness, he he defended, uh, once again, House Bill 6, this nuclear bailout bill that's at the <laughs> center of the case, uh, corruption case against him. And, uh, you know, supposedly the fruit of a $60 million bribery scheme he engineered. But he said it was good policy, you know, good legislation. And he also said that he does now have a lawyer, although he wouldn't name that person. And he said he intends to plead not guilty and vigorously defend himself because he's innocent. I, I just I, I was stunned that he would show up. And then I thought, you know, maybe he needs the money. If he doesn't show up and he leaves the body, he doesn't have an income and maybe he's just yeah. trying to keep the money coming. But I, I can't imagine <laughs> that the other House members who are all up for reelection in two months we're pleased to see him in the hall because it just stresses to the voters, hey, look at this. The guy who ran this body was corrupt and created the most ugly scheme we've been ever talked right. about, you know, and vote in two months. Uh, well, uh, we the, did the, hear from the, the House Speaker, the new Speaker, Bob Cup, who said he thought it was offensive to, to many of the members. And, and he said the fact is he's brought disrepute on the house and we have a lot of hard-working members who are ethical and above board and he thinks householders should consider resigning of course on the democratic side i i think they're secretly kind of getting a kick out of this i mean (laughs) they 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 basically feel that the republicans made their own bed here because they failed to impeach him or otherwise oust him from his seat so you know what do they expect i I ask a question sorry it's laura johnston this got asked to Mike DeWine at the briefing yesterday, right? Like he yeah. had a different response. Well, he said uh, he's a member of the House, so he has a right to be there. And he's right. As I said, the Republicans, his fellow Republicans have not seen fit to remove him from his seat. So that's uh, right now. 
you know, he's he's a working member of the House. This is Chris Bernowski. I just it, it's it's just amazing how shame just doesn't really seem to exist no, anymore. No, no. Like like no no sense of shame. Just like straight entitlement, straight I, I deserve to be here. I, I have to point out one thing that I thought was very, very funny, which was Andrew Tobias had a headline on a story that said that the Ohio House is poised to remove householder from legislative ethics panel following corruption arrest. <laughs> it's like, yeah, might want to yeah. remove him from the ethics panel after his arrest. <laughs> he actually <laughs> said he's in favor of that. Like he was going to vote for for that, yeah. for removing yeah. himself. What, what an honorable fellow. Yeah. You know, yeah. Dan, you said he has the right to be there. And, that, you know, yeah, okay, that's one definition of the word right. But there's also right and wrong. When you're oh, accused of masterminding the biggest scheme like this in the history of the state, the right thing to do is to not show up. I mean, it's, right. it's, th- th- this is damaging. And that, you know, there actually comment. is a question because I think the terms of his release on bond say that he's not supposed to have any contact with potential witnesses or other people. You know, like when you look at the state house, it's potentially full of possible witnesses, you know? So we, well, ha- hey. we haven't been able to get clarity on that question, but he said his lawyer told him it was okay to come. Okay. But, but maybe the feds will fix it. Maybe the feds will say, no, 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 no. We told you, you couldn't be with those people. You're violating your terms of bond yeah. and they'll lock him up to keep him out of the state house. Cause clearly his colleagues are not going to do what it takes. They haven't even really started to repeal this corrupt piece of legislation yet. Anyway, it's this week in the CLE. How is the Cleveland Foundation putting its money where its mouth is when it comes to attacking the racism that is prevalent in Cleveland? Laura Johnson, this was a, a bit of a surprise announcement. Did it come out of their annual meeting or something? They're gonna they're really trying to attack some of the roots of racism with some some real money, not a giant sum, but but not an insignificant sum. Yeah, they they did. They had a big meeting today, and this was an announcement that came out of it, one of it. The idea is $2.5 million towards making improvements. They say Black residents in Cleveland have higher rates of infant mortality and childhood poverty. They're overrepresented in the criminal justice system, disproportionately represented in lower job uh, lower wage jobs have shorter life expectancy and they want to do something about it. So they want to give this money to strengthen black leaders and black serving organizations in Cleveland and provide resources for those to grow. So it sounds like they're not going to start a bunch of initiatives. They're going to look at what is working in the black community and give money out there. They called it, um, Foundation president called Ron Richards called it our first step in what must be a long term community wide effort to dismantle racist systems that have made communities of color vulnerable. So they're not saying this is the be all end all, but I think it's really impressive that they are stepping up. And like I said, this was one of two announcements. They started this Greater Cleveland COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund in March, and they gave out about eight point five million dollars with a bunch of other charities through July, they're starting phase two. And part of that is going to be aimed at racial justice as well. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. (laughs) The Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority took a step Tuesday to help people out during these coronavirus afflicted times. Chris Farnowski, what did they do? Well, they have decided they're going to reduce the price of all day passes and rescind fare increases scheduled for 2021 and 2022. Uh, the policy changes that were approved uh, by a unanimous vote mean the price of standard all-day passes will drop from five fifty to five dollars starting on October fourth. The board also decided to rescind a proposed policy change that would have resulted 
in the price of a single trip increasing from $2.50 to $2.75 and uh, paratransit fees increasing in uh, uh, 2021 and 2022. So they they decided to do this, I think, because they're trying to get more people to actually come out and and ride it. Uh, You know, this would actually result in some lost revenue to a, a, an agency that's already financially challenged. But, you know, as we've talked about with the post office, it's not really their job to make money. So, it, it, you know, the, so the, is, but, but that's the question. Are they doing this to be, because it's the right thing to do to help people? Or are they doing it because they think it, it will get more people to ride and that the sum, the sum of the, the, all the extra fares will exceed what they're getting now? Well, they anticipate that that reducing the cost of the all-day passes would attract uh, about uh, two hundred and seventy thousand additional riders per year. Um, so, so yeah, part of part of that is to to try to lure more people into using their services. You know, I you know I think they they've had some difficult PR I think throughout the coronavirus uh, pandemic because they've had drivers get sick and they've, you know, and, and so I think, you know, part of it, it's, it's all sort of intermingled, you know, they, they need more people on that. And, and, and frankly, you know, we need, we need people to have access to, to public transit. It's, it's very important to, you know, business, downtown businesses that are open to, you know, to people who need to, to get out and, and, and be in the world and to vote and to go out and vote as we talked about earlier. So, you know, uh, so, you know, this is, this is a good thing for people who, who do use those services. So, uh, you're, keep an eye out for that. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What does the latest poll say about the presidential race in Ohio? And Jane Cahoon, before you answer, I'm throwing the flag because what it says about women, I'm just not buying it. it to me, it discredits this whole poll. <laughs> so take us through the numbers. Well, it's just one data point. I mean, I, I think that part was a real eye-opener, really, at odds. But anyway, okay. Morning Consult does this daily tracking poll uh, and of likely voters. And the results have been pretty consistent in Ohio with, with Trump ahead by five points over Joe Biden, uh, 50 to 45%, which does show the race is still competitive. And it's not a surprise that Trump is leading, given that he won this state by eight points in 2016. But uh, they they do poll daily and they use like a 10 day rolling average for state level head to head results. So, uh, as I said, it's been pretty consistent. But when you when you get to the breakdowns, um, some of it is eye opening, some is not. What is not eye opening is that Trump is leading among rural voters and Biden is leading among urban voters. Uh Suburban voters, I think, uh, are slightly preferring Trump, which might be a surprise, 50 to 45. And then uh, among college-educated white Ohioans, likely voters are split 48% for, for both candidates. Uh, Trump did well with independence. And um, the as, as you said, the, the kind of eye-opening part is that his support was unexpectedly high among female voters, which has always been a weak point for his presidential campaign. According to this survey, 54% of likely women voters backed him while only 42 supported Biden. It's just, it's kind of upside down from other, other polls. Yeah. Baldwin Wallace is about to go back out into the field with its latest poll. And, and they've been very consistent in finding a much more lopsided 
uh, women vote against Trump than for Trump. I, 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 the, the fact that they found women the way they did, I, I just don't buy this poll. I think there must be some flaw in it that we don't spot, uh, which, you know, puts all of the results into question. And, you know, as we, as we have said many times over the years, polling has become a much less reliable science in recent years, partly because people lie. Uh, All you have to do is look to uh, look at 2016. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just I don't think this says a whole lot about what's going on. I'll be interested to see what we get from the Baldwin Wallace poll and how much things have changed because it's apples to apples. You're listening to this week in the CLE. That's going to do it for another episode. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back with another episode on Thursday. Mm-hmm.